0: Women have been expressing themselves since the beginning of time, yet most people struggle to name even one non-male artist from before the 20th century. I'm Jennifer Hickey, editor-at-large of Freeze magazine, and in this podcast we pay tribute to a female artist from the past to whom we should all bow down. The Bow Down podcast from Freeze magazine. Episode 2, Agnes Martin, nominated by Olivia Lime. She's somebody who starts in midlife
1: and continues to old age. And so often we hear about artists who start very early and run out or die so young, and her story is the opposite of that. For women in particular,
0: it's really thrilling. Born in 1912 in Canada, Agnes Martin was a gay, working-class woman in a male-dominated art world who didn't have her first solo show until she was 46. With a practice inspired by Zen Buddhist and American transcendentalist ideas, Agnes believed that her paintings embodied a kind of freedom from the cares of the world. Art, she said, is the concrete representation of most of our subtle feelings. Here to discuss Agnes Martin is the best selling author Olivia Lang. Her recent novel Crudo was the winner of the 100th James Tate Black Memorial Prize, and her collected essays, Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency, will be published in spring 2020. She's currently working on Everybody, a book about bodies and freedom. Welcome, Olivia. Hi. <laughs> so, Olivia, who was Agnes Martin?
1: Um, Well, Agnes Martin was, I think, one of the greatest abstract painters that has lived. An extraordinary experimenter and also somebody who controlled her identity in an extraordinary way. I was just thinking, as you were saying, bow down, would Agnes have liked us bowing down to her? I'm not sure she would. She's very... She was very opposed to any sort of cult of personality, and yet in odd ways she completely facilitated a cult of personality. So she's a curious mix of cross-tensions and ambiguities, which I personally find completely fascinating.
0: So what was the trajectory of her, her career as an artist? As I mentioned, she didn't have her first solo show until she was 46. So what happened in the decades before then?
1: She was very much a late starter. She began, she grew up as a farm girl on the prairie. She's an exact contemporary of Jackson Pollock, but a very different early Early career so she nearly became an olympic swimmer wow. and after that she basically was training to be a teacher that was that was the main thing that she was doing so she began as an artist because of encountering art through through teaching programs and gradually trained more and more but was still doing teacher training up until her 40s so she was going back to teachers college at columbia in new york in between stints in new mexico where she was very much focused on her own art practice And you look at her early work and you can see it's somebody who hasn't quite found what it is that they want to do. They haven't quite found the mode of expression that will work for them. So then in the late 50s, early 60s, Betty Parson says, actually, you know, I really like the stuff you're doing in New Mexico. And she
0: was the legendary gallerist. She was the legendary
1: gallerist. I mean, also painter in her own right. She's got a show coming up. But... Yeah, she was very well known as a gallerist. And she gave Agnes this deal. She said, yes, I will give you a show, but you have to move to New York. You have to be in the art world. And Agnes, who was somebody who often lived in really isolated places, who sort of thrived off being in very remote regions, moved to New York, moved into Coente Slip, which is an artist community that was mainly populated by gay artists. Robert Indiana was there, Jasper Johns, Ellsworth Kelly, Lenore Tawney, the fabric artist with whom Agnes had a relationship – And in this community of real experimenters, abstract experimenters, the next generation on from the abstract expressionists, she discovered the grid. She came to the grid, which was the
0: form that she then was celebrated for, became famous for. Had her family, were they artistic at all? Did they encourage her interest in art? Was she exposed to art from an early age?
1: I think she wasn't really exposed to art at all and she had a very bad relationship with her mother. She said to the writer, her friend Jill Johnson, that she was emotionally abused by her mother and she says it again in Mary Lance's amazing documentary about her. She had an abusive, really unnurturing upbringing but what she also said was that the isolation of that and the isolation especially in this very visually bare landscape, if you think about the prairies, it's just bare land, bare sky something about that she thought created a kind of turn inward that made her not just dependent on her own resources but became imaginative started to live in her own sort of imaginative universe and so i think that did feed something in her it fed a kind of self-sufficiency and it fed a kind of visionariness a need to make a world elsewhere that wasn't the material world but by no means a conventional art education as a child, by no means a sort of rich artistic environment. And so how did Betty Parsons come across her work? She was showing in New Mexico and people people who are her contemporaries then say she was incredibly ambitious, which is funny because later she became this sort of Zen mystic who would say it's mm. the great sin is pride. But there was a period where she was like, I am going to be famous. And she kept making work and she kept destroying it. And this carries on like into her 80s. If she didn't like something, she destroyed it. So she was absolutely ruthless with herself about making work that she thought was
0: really, really good. The kind of visual language that she was exploring is extreme minimalism. I mean, there were other artists who were doing this kind of thing in terms of really reducing the picture plane down to very simple colours or very fragile lines. But her minimalism had a very specific sort of spiritual aspect. And even a feel-good aspect. She always wanted to make paintings that made people feel better about their lives. And how did she discover this minimal language?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, she loved Rothko and she especially loved Ad Adreinhardt and her were very close friends. And I think he, he is the person who really introduces her to Zen, this kind of practice of reality not being based in the material, reality not being based in a binary language, reality not being based in objects. It's ineffable. It's something else. And she... Absolutely was in love with that idea and wanted to find a way of reproducing that. So her canvases are always, until in later life, she couldn't handle them anymore, six foot by six foot. And the reason that she's making these gigantic images of really nothing, nothing that you can settle on, Mm -hmm. images that your eye sort of drifts and floats over is because she wanted them to have an emotional impact on you that was like walking up to the ocean, that just flooded you with a Mm. kind of feeling of happiness, joy, beauty, these sort of ineffable feelings. She wanted the painting to conjure that in the viewer. It's Mm. almost like it's a door
0: that you pass through to another kind of state, which I must say I find really moving. They are extremely beautiful, these paintings. They are yeah. so still and quiet and they're like finding solace in a, in a world that bombards you with images and noise. They?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And they, they have this trick about them, or not trick, but they have a peculiarity about them that they're always... You can never get the whole of the painting because if you stand up close, you can see the grid. You can mm. see the little wavering pencil lines which she's drawing with the ruler. But if you step back... The grid dissolves, and what you get instead is a sort of shimmer of colour. And that kind of shift back and forth is completely extraordinary. When the Tate show was on, I spent lots of time looking at lots of these paintings, and just having that movement back and forth, you stand a foot from the canvas, one thing Mm -hmm. is happening, you stand six foot, ten foot back, and a whole different experience happens. And I think that gives you a feeling of... There's always slightly, something's always eluding you, something's mm. always escaping you, and it's so exciting to be presented with that. Mm.
0: And how are they received in New York? New York of the 1950s and 60s in the art world, you've got Jackson Pollock and Robert Smithson getting drunk down at the Cedar (laughs) Tavern, you know. It's a very macho, uh, male-dominated world, really, of these these big characters, big, very vocal characters. So how does um, a sort of a a gay, zen, working-class woman fit into this environment?
1: Well, this is the amazing thing about Coente's slip. So you've got the sort of abstract expressionists hanging out around the Cedar Tavern, being really blokey, hitting each other in the Mm. face all the time. Mm and having fight i mean having fights about their artwork Cointy Slip, it's right down at the tip of Manhattan. It's at at the very lowest end. So it's the financial district, which just empties out Mm -hmm. at night and at weekends. And at that point, it was still basically a seaport. It was still, she said that from her um, studio, she could watch the sailors, the streets smell of fish, there are cats pottering around. So in this sort of abandoned space, this queer community arises Mm -hmm. and people are much more supportive of each other, careful with each other, but also very separate. There's a lot of silence and solitude, which Mm. is something that in many ways Agnes thrived in. But, and there's a big but about this, she was also a paranoid schizophrenic. She'd been diagnosed Mm. in early adulthood. And that same atmosphere, I think, that was very fulfilling and nurturing to her was also problematic because the isolation of it really meant that when she was heading off into an episode, which she did periodically, it was hard for anyone to notice that that was happening. Mm. So there was at least one occasion where she was forcibly incarcerated in Bellevue in the mental institute. Mm. She entered into catatonia when she was Mm. having an episode and she couldn't say her own name. She didn't know where she lived. And it was only the chance of a nurse finding in her pocket the phone number of one of the twenty Slip artists, probably Robert Indiana, and calling it that meant that she was rescued from that situation at all. Mm. And this is the era, I mean, we think of One flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest, this is the era in which people were physically restrained, people were given electric shock therapy. She said she was given electric shock therapy 100 times, Gosh. which is extraordinary to think about. Mm. So beneath the sort of luscious surface of these paintings, there's a lot of dark tensions going on.
0: Do you think that Agnes was lonely during this time, or was she someone rather who embraced solitude?
1: That is such a tough question. I mean, she has a relationship with solitude and renunciation throughout her life. And the, the thing that happens next for her is that she leaves the art world entirely. She vanishes for and when months. was this? This is 1967. Mm-hmm. Probably it happened after Ad Reinhardt died. So people say it's the summer of, but it can't have been because he died in September. So I'm, I'm guessing that it's at some point in September 67.
0: And he was her close friend. He was her close friend. Yeah. And
1: other things were going on. She was losing her studio. The mm-hmm. whole community was breaking up. Um, She gave up painting and... She went off on the road for 18 months and she reappeared in New Mexico. And after that, although she did come back to painting, she lived in extremely solitary ways, which I think probably was very lonely and isolating. But it seems like it was also necessary for her as a way of maintaining some sort of balance and control over her mental state to not enter into close emotional or sexual Mm. relationships with other people pretty much for the rest of her life. Mm. She did have friendships, but she found them intensely challenging Mm. and many people testify to the experience of being cast out by Agnes, excluded by Agnes. So it seems like... And in this, I think she's closer in some ways to Henry Darger of anyone else I wrote about in The Lonely City. Mm. She needed a sort of... Separation around her, and at the same time, I'm sure that was lonely.
0: It's very interesting looking at what had happened to her in the late 60s. You know, she makes this abrupt decision to leave New York and also leave the art world until the early 70s when she starts painting again. But she'd actually had huge success. She'd been included in the Carnegie International in 1961, she'd been in group exhibitions at the Whitney, at the Guggenheim, and at MoMA and at the very important Minimalist exhibition organised at the Dwan Gallery in New York. Yeah. And so she's leaving at a point in time where she's becoming sex- successful. She's mm. selling her work. Yeah. Um, museums are buying it. She's becoming financially independent, finally. Yeah. But she turns her back on it.
1: She totally turns her back on it. And I think this is, so, this is an element of Agnes that I think certainly I want to bear down to is... This incredible sense of knowing what she's doing and what matters to her. And it is never worldly success, although she does achieve it. And although she said early on that she wanted it, what mattered to her was really, I think, spiritual things, a way a way of living in the world. And also making the kind of paintings that she wanted to make on the terms that she wanted to make them. Mm. It wasn't about making things that were palatable for a gallery and at one point she's offered a solo show at the Whitney and they want her to have a catalogue essay that has biographical elements in it and she says I'm cancelling the show well, I mean who, who does that rather than Nobody, just cancelling the catalogue <laughs> rather than actually, no she's like no, it's not for me. Mm. She's she's absolutely rigid. Mm. R- rigidity has, you know, darker elements about it, more difficult elements. But there's something also just totally tough about her. She mm. knows exactly what she wants and doesn't want. And in a period where it's hard for a women artist to say those things, she will say those notes. And do you think her
0: her sexuality played into this deep protection of her privacy?
1: Yeah, I really absolutely do. So I I find it really interesting that in the literature about Agnes Martin, a lot of it, which is extraordinarily good and interesting and thoughtful, there's a real unwillingness to say Agnes Martin was a lesbian. And what did that mean for her? What Mm. did that mean for her at that moment in the 50s? And this is during the Lavender Scare. This is the period where gay people are really being officially persecuted both inside the apparatus of the American state and outside. It's a hugely homophobic moment. And that requirement to live in silence, her her girlfriend Christina Wilson said Agnes was terrified all the time. She was absolutely terrified of being found out, Mm. of being exposed, of losing funding. And whether those fears were realistic or not, whether that would have happened to her, the sense that there was a punishment looming feeds into a kind of silence that is clearly also there in her work. I don't Mm. think you can make literal sort of parallels, but there's some kind of conversation going on between the need to be silent around mental illness, the need to be silent around sexuality... And I mean, you've got to think, like, at that moment, DSM-1 had just been published, the Manual of Mental Health Disorders, maybe 1963, saying homosexuality is a mental illness. And this is somebody who's being forcibly given shock therapy. Being gay at that point is an identity that is absolutely dangerous. Mm. So you cannot underestimate, I think, the forces that are moving through Martin's life mm. and the the ways that she is resisting them. So when mm. she says, as she does, I'm not a lesbian to Jill Johnson, she also says to Jill Johnson, I'm not a woman. And then I'm not a woman. I'm a doorknob. Right. <laughs> She's just saying, I'm not going to take on these identities. Yeah. I don't want them. They don't suit me. They're dangerous for mm. me. I refuse. And I think the grid, you can really see it. it's a refusal of being either this or that. Mm. It's always evading. It's such an interesting form for that person at that time to make. And
0: so what does she do for the next few years until she starts painting again in 1973?
1: Well, she, again, bow down, Agnes Martin. <laughs> she she goes up to a gas station, cafe gas station in Cuba, New Mexico, and says, do you know of any land to rent? I want land with a spring. And the guy says, oh, actually, my wife has land to rent with a spring. So Agnes moves onto it. It's 20 miles across rough terrain from the nearest road. I mean, you're Australian, so this will seem less (laughs) dramatic to you than to a British person. And she's by herself. She's She's by herself. herself. There's no electricity. There's no running water. And she moves up there. She eventually builds herself a house by chainsawing down trees (laughs) and building a house physically herself. At one point, somebody's looking for her in the town, and a guy says, oh, I think that's the woman that prepares and seasons the bear skins for us. Like, what? (laughs) How does that come up? Um, So she lives this real kind of pioneer life. And when she's done that, when she's established herself, then and only then, this is after about three or four years, does she return to making art, first by making some screen prints for a show in Germany, and then by starting to paint again.
0: And of course, all of this time she's living alone. I mean, she she famously wrote that, you know, an artist shouldn't even have pets, let alone friends or lovers, because they're too distracting. And so...
1: <laughs> so <laughs> it's intense. Yeah,
0: And I mean, she, she lives until the age of 92. She dies in 2004. Mm. And so just for the next however many decades, she's living there alone, making her work. Well,
1: no, not quite. Um, for a long time, she lived with Donald Woodman, who wrote a really, really beautiful and very disturbing, sad memoir about living with Agnes. He was much younger than her and she lived on his land and he was there when she had several psychotic breaks and that relationship soured and became became very difficult and in the end, his account is that the gallery sort of coerced him into selling the land to Agnes and he was cut off completely from her. So... There were people kind of coming through her life and that sometimes those relationships ended painfully and some people managed to carry on mm-hmm. being friends with her. And as she got older, and I think this this tends to happen, or this does frequently happen mm-hmm. with schizophrenia, she was better treated, the illness was less intense anyway as she mm-hmm. aged. And she moved much more into a more rich social life, I think. So the, the, that period of extreme isolation ended and people re-entered her life. So by the end of her life, when she became ill, she was living in a care facility, but she still had a studio and she was still working. But as I said earlier, this is the, the smaller canvases because she couldn't handle the massive ones anymore. Yeah. She continues making work really to the very end of her life. Which, again, I find absolutely inspiring. She's somebody who starts in midlife and continues to old age. Mm -hmm. And so often we hear about artists who start very early and run out or die so young. Mm -hmm. And her story is the opposite of that, which I think for women in particular... It's really
0: thrilling. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, she's had a great legacy. She, you know, as I mentioned, she died in 2004 mm. and she's influenced so many writers, mm. artists, well-known contemporary artists such as Richard Tuttle, Ellen Gallagher and Ronnie Horn. all cite her as a sort of major influence on their work. And what kind of influ- influences she had on your work or your thinking, do you think?
1: She's a major character in the book I'm writing now, everybody, and I find her so fascinating because of all of these you know, in some ways she's very counter to the times that we're in. We're in a moment that's very intensely interested in identity and she refuses all that. She's interested in other things, maybe things that are more ephemeral and less tangible. And she uses as her tool refusal, renunciation and silence, which are not the tools that people are currently wielding. And that makes her quite fascinating to me. I think the way that she lives inside the tensions of her times and the solutions she finds to that are really exciting she's she's somebody who both as an artist and as a human seems to me to offer whole new ideas about living that Mm. I, I don't think we've really in the biographies and in the writing about her so far properly got to grips with what she means as a figure in the 21st century and then just the fact of saying I am leaving the art world, Mm. my life is going to look like this. The fact of that gigantic no, I think is so inspiring Mm. to say, I'm going to keep painting. And her painting changes to the very end of her life. So in the very last series of paintings she makes, objects return. There are Mm. triangles and rectangles and these sort of very somber shapes. She... Really wasn't afraid. She really wasn't afraid. She wasn't just churning out the same thing again and again. She was absolutely the servant to her own vision. And I think, you know, as an artist, what could be more inspiring than that? Bow down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Join me next time when I'll be speaking with the writer Laura Mulvey about the influential filmmaker Chantal Ackerman. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow the Bow Down Podcast Instagram, where you can hear more episodes and see the work of Agnes Martin and other female artists to whom we should all bow down. Thanks to Olivia Lang and my producers Jessie Lawson and Anta Dean. Our music is by Susie Higgy. This is a reduced listening production for freeze. Chutters,